encourage you to uh, turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3 if you haven't done so. Um, We want to begin today our look at the end of John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, I should say, 1 John 3, and the end runs from chapter 17, slow down, from verse 17 to verse 24. Um, So let's look to the Lord in prayer, and then we will um, begin. Father in heaven, we bow now in the blessed name of our Savior, and we ask you to be with us as we look into this testimony of your word. Father, what you have set before us um, is uh, a challenge, and Lord, it is a challenge that we can only meet through your grace. So we pray, Father, that you would, by grace, give us the understanding of it, and then, Lord, by grace, give us the ability to meet that challenge. We thank you for your love. We pray, the Lord, that we may love others. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So if you look at 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 17 and looking down through verse 24, you'll see that there are three things there. There is a question. There, that's verse 17. There is an admonition. That's in verse 18. And then you have four assurances. And those four assurances are in verses 19 through 24. Now this morning, we want to consider the first two things. The question and the admonition. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll consider the four assurances. So in verse 17, you have this question. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Now, as we think about this question, we understand that it sits in a context, a very important context, and it doesn't just stand alone. John's just not bringing up a question. He's he's asking a question in the context of what he's been teaching. So if we go back to verse 14, we read this. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And here are the facts that we've traced uh, so far in this context as we've been studying this passage. The first thing is this. Anyone who less than loves his or her brother or sister abides in death and is a murderer. It's a very plain statement, a very clear statement by John. Anyone who less than loves his or her brother or sister 
abides in death, and is a murderer. The second thing that we've seen is that you Christians who are here this morning, you know what love is because he for you, that is Jesus for you, laid down his life. Therefore, the laying down of one's life for another is love. The third thing that we've seen is that if you love and don't hate your brothers and sisters because you have life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you, for them, should lay down your life. So he for us, you for them. And then that brings us to this question. Having considered those three truths, we're brought to this question. And we want to look at this question in, first of all, in light of the situation that's described here. Because John gives us a specific situation. Let's just read again. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So first of all, when we think about the situation, you have the observer. You have what is necessary for living in the world. The observer does. He or she has what's necessary for being able to sustain life in the world. And it's an interesting way of putting it because it includes people on every economic level from subsistence, really, to wealthy. If you're in a position where God has provided you with enough to live, you are the one, you are the observer that John is referring to here. So he's not just talking about the wealthy who have more than enough. He's talking about anyone who has enough of this world's goods so that he or she is sustained, is able to live. Now, secondly, being that person, the one who has what is necessary to sustain life in this world, you see as an observer or you witness or you become aware of a brother or sister in need. And it's another interesting term because it reflects the opposite of you. That is, you have what is necessary for being able to live in this world, but now you know or are aware of someone who does not have what is necessary for them to sustain life in this world. So that's the contrast. You have enough to be able to sustain you. You've come across someone, you're aware of someone, you find someone who does not have enough. And so they're in real jeopardy because they don't have what is necessary to sustain them. Thirdly, the first two things being true, you respond to the situation. Not by laying down your life for theirs, but by closing your heart. In, this, in the way the question's put here. Literally slamming it shut. 
and locking it against that person who doesn't have enough to sustain themselves in this world. They don't have what's necessary or required to subsist. And because they don't have it, they're eventually going to die. But you seeing them, you being aware of that situation, you knowing that about them, you close your heart and lock it. Slam it shut against them and their need. Now, the question is, can the love of Christ be in the heart of the one whose reaction is like that. But before we get into the the concluding question, I want to flesh out a little bit this idea, both in regard to the context of the times of, of John and the practical application of the matter to our time. Let's consider need in the first century to begin with. The Holy Spirit is very careful here to have John express himself in a way that is universal in time and character. In most instances, you can't compare the poverty of the Roman Empire in the first century with poverty today. You just can't make a correlation. They're two different things. But it goes beyond that because poverty often is regional in its implications. Let's say that you have a million dollars in gold. You're not telling anybody, but you've got it in your mattress. A million dollars in gold. But there's no food for you to buy, for you or your family. Are you rich? Are you wealthy? You can't sustain your family. They're dying because you can't feed them because there's no food to buy. How about if you don't have a widow's mite to pay your taxes, but you have a garden bursting with fruits and vegetables and a yard full of chickens? Are you rich or are you poor? Which is the rich person in that picture? Which is the poor person? You see, the circumstances dictate differently in different situations. In the first century after Christ's birth, life in in and around Judea and Galilee changed dramatically. When Jesus was walking about in the towns and villages, when John was walking with him, the region was economically strong. And almost everyone was at a healthy level of daily maintenance, it seems. And we're not talking about everybody being wealthy and having gold in their mattress. We're just talking about everybody having what they needed to sustain themselves, to subsist in the world. But by the time John is writing in this epistle, all of that has changed. Drought. Oppressive taxes, epidemics, 
and foolish policies implemented by Rome and by its governors in the region have driven the economy downward. And by the time he is writing here, it seems that it was far more likely to discover someone who was truly in need, who could not, did not have what they needed to subsist in this world. Not just what they wanted, but they didn't have what they needed, lacking what was necessary for life. Debt was so punishing because of taxes and their impact on all commodities that twice in that century there were revolts in the area and the first thing the revolters did was run to the archive where the record of all the debts were stored and burned it down so there would be no record of their debts and that freed them up from from that obligation that was the first thing they did in, in responding to the, 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 the mismanagement of the government, so to speak. Um, where those financial records were kept, those were destroyed. Healthcare was all but non-existent for the lower classes. There was no definable middle class at this time. Christian History Magazine summarizes the situation in this way. Compassion was not a well-developed virtue among the pagan Romans. Mercy was discouraged, as it only helped those too weak to contribute to society. In the cramped, unsanitary warns of the typical Roman city, under the miserable cycle of plagues and famines, the sick found no public institutions dedicated to their care and little in the way of sympathy or help. Perhaps a family member would come to their aid, but sometimes even close relatives would leave their own to die. Now, when you hear that situation, it kind of puts what John is saying here in a little different light, doesn't it? This is what he's seeing. This is what he's experiencing. And that's why he's writing as he is. If you, who have what you need to to subsist come across someone who doesn't have even the most basic things necessary for life, and you lock up your heart against them, how does the love of Christ dwell in you? That's what he's saying, abide in you. And his words uh, make the circumstance that he's referring to really clear. Now, it doesn't matter that you and I live in different times or in a different place. The same principle remains true. If you or I have what we need to sustain ourselves in this time, in this place, and we become aware of someone who does not have that, and we respond by locking up our hearts against them, well, what does that suggest? What does that say about our understanding, our grasp of the love of Christ? Now, there are all sorts of reasons for, for that, um, all sorts of reasons that a brother or sister may have gotten into this position. But if they're truly in need, that is, if they're without the means to sustain their life, not that they have the means and have squandered the means, available to them 
but that they're or that they're they're squandering it in some passion or something, or in just fulfilling their wants rather than their needs. That needs to be dealt with in a different way. But if they are really in this situation, and you can help, and you refuse to do do so, John asks. How does the love, God's love, abide in that person? Well, that puts it in the context for us. How can that love, <coughs> excuse me, which is born of the Holy Spirit, and that love which is known by Christ giving his life for that one, be living in the heart of the one who has locked away his or her heart, from that person who's in need. And his question is as much an exclamation as it is a question. How can that be? How can you see a person like that? A person who has what they need comes upon someone who doesn't have what they need to live and then locks up his heart and says, I'm a Christian. John says, how can that be? How can that be the reaction of the believer to a circumstance like that? If the love of Christ, beloved, lives in us, the the child of God, by virtue of that faith that God has given him or her, manifests itself in some practical way, and it has to be in this practical way to a love that demonstrates itself particularly towards those who are in need. James says the same thing in a different way. This is in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now it is absolutely clear here that John is not offering such works as a means of salvation um, in conjunction with faith. Now, I'm not even going to go there right now and talk about that, but that's not obviously what he's talking about here. He's talking about it as the evidence of faith. He's saying, where is the evidence of that faith? It's interesting that this principle was even found in the law. This attitude of compassion was a part of the law from the beginning and was no new thing. But the love of Christ gave it life and gave it texture. So we go to Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 7. The law of the Lord. Deuteronomy 15, 7. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your brother, your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. That's the same thing, isn't it? You see your brother, your sister in need, 
You don't lock up your heart against them, close your hand, you open it, and you provide what's needed. When Jesus declared that the judgment of God was already afoot, that he was already bringing judgment into the world, in Luke chapter 3, we find this interesting exchange. It's Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. Even now, Jesus says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Where did John get this idea from? Well, right here. Jesus says, if you have enough to sustain you, and you see someone who doesn't have enough, you give him your extra tunic so he has enough. If you have food enough to feed you, you give him what you have in order to feed him. The spirit of Antichrist, beloved, produces a culture of death, as we've mentioned before. The spirit of Christ produces a culture dedicated to life. He for you, you for them. Now this question is followed, in all that it implies, by the admonition of John in verse 18, where he says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And because we covered, covered these words at length not all that long ago, I'm not going to do so now. But in this context, they're quite easily understood and applied, aren't they? We are not to be content with imaginary obedience. In other words, we're not to be content with saying, well, I have enough. And I see he or she doesn't. And I sure hope things get better for them. And my hope that things will get better for them fulfills my obligation. I'll even say a little prayer for you. And that'll fulfill it. It's not imaginary. It's real. That It's the real thing that John is calling for here. True reaction. Spirit-born compassion that results in something. But I would also offer this thought. What is being declared by John here is really representative of the whole concern the believer has for life. In other words, this example isn't used here so that you can say, whew, thank goodness, I don't know anyone who's dying for lack of sustenance, so I'm okay. I don't need to worry about this. None of my acquaintances, none of the people I ever see or come to contact with are without what they need for life. So I'm sort of, I'll keep my eyes open, but I'm kind of excused because I don't know anybody like this. No, it's as Calvin says. He so recommends this external kindness that at the same time, he very fitly expresses the right way of doing good and what sort of feeling ought to be in us. In other words, it's not just this situation that we're talking about 
but it's the whole concept of compassionate love to those who are in need. And you, beloved, as believers, you have what you need for the sustaining of your life now and for eternity. By God's grace, you have fed on the gospel. You have found the bread of life. You have been drinking from that fountain of salvation. You have what is necessary to sustain you. But all around you and me are people who don't have it and are dying because they don't have it. And if we shut up our hearts against them and lock them shut, how does the love of Christ abide in us? We're not just to have this sort of sacrificial spirit towards those without this world's goods. But we should also be concerned with those who are in danger in other ways and be even more concerned with those who are by reason of their sin and unbelief in danger of the second death. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits or loses his soul. It is this call to support and encourage, beloved, all life that ultimately puts to the test our love for Christ. Excuses abound. But in the end, if my love of ease and comfort my love of my own comfort zone makes me sluggish. If my delicate tastes and my pride cause me to shy away from those really in need but who are a bit unseemly. If my pride dressed up as shy reserve causes me to keep myself to myself when I ought to be out, as Candley says, quoting Isaiah, sowing beside all waters, I stand in real danger of being the one who loves only in word and who is lacking the strength of the Holy Spirit and has locked up his heart against those who are in need. Look back to the cross for a moment. In his beaten and broken appearance, Jesus has become a spectacle of suffering. Don't reflect right now on any images that you've seen over the years of, his, of him on the cross, because all of them are fanciful, and all of them lack, lack excuse me, essential elements. No picture or film can ever do this scene justice because they can never fully capture the beauty of his innocent majesty or the depths of his holy suffering. And so we don't want to dwell on what images we've seen. We want to dwell on the reality of the thing. It is him for you, 
there on the cross. And I want you to focus for a moment on this moment. One of the sanctimonious rulers of the people approaches as Jesus is being impaled on the cross. Jesus has just uttered the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this ruler saunters up at that moment and with scoffing bitterness says, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. He saved others. Let him save himself now. Finding finding that taunt clever, others very quickly join in. And the same vein, they say, as we read in Matthew 24, (coughs) he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And hopefully you see the deep irony in those words. If he did at that moment choose to save himself, which he could have easily done, he had the power and the means to do so. But if he did save himself in that moment, all of you and some of those present at the moment would have all been lost. That's the irony of that moment. They're saying, not he for them. Be you for yourself, they're saying, if you're the son of God. But that's not who he is as the son of God. It is he for us. That's what's going on there. By this, beloved, you and I know love. When he for you laid down his life on the cross. Not because he had no other alternative. But because he loved you. And John asks here, can this sort of love live in in the saved believer if he or she sees someone in need and locks up his or her heart? And we all know the answer, don't we? What's the answer? No. No. Those who know they are loved like this will give evidence of their part in that love by laying down their own lives for their brothers and sisters, you and me for them. And that's what John is talking about. And he goes from this example that he sets before you to the next four assurances that we'll take up next time. And the first of those is this. If that kind of love is in you, you are in Christ. Because it's only in the believer that this kind of love lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless this portion of your word to our hearts this morning. Lord, I think every 
heart bowed before you can make some degree of confession regarding these matters. Times when, because of our sensibilities, perhaps because of a false pride dressed up as shyness, we've held back what is necessary for the life of another. Oh, Lord, all we can do is pray that you would forgive us for any such offense. I can't speak for anyone else, Lord. I can only speak for myself, but I, I pray that other hearts will be joined with me who find it true. Lord, forgive us. And Lord, raise us up out of those false excuses. And Lord, open our hearts. We have the bread of life. We drink from the stream of everlasting waters. Lord, let us go from this place freely sharing it on the most fundamental level of seeing a brother who just doesn't have what they need to live in this world and, Lord, helping them however we can, all the way, Lord, to sharing with them the truth that saves. Lord, give us that desire, give us that heart, give us the strength to do so. And Lord, to all who are faithful in doing it, who share when they can and have spoken of the things of Christ to others and given when they could, Lord, may the glory all be yours. And may you use our efforts for the elect's sake, for their blessing, for their rescue. And Lord, may we grow in our understanding of what it means to be in the love of Christ. And may we share that love with the world. Grant us, Lord, the strength and grace towards that end. And if there's anyone here in our midst this morning who is in that kind of need, we pray, Lord, that they would make it known and that we would quickly and readily respond in every way we can, whether it's on the most fundamental level of what they need for life or whether it's what they need for eternal life. Lord, may they find here what they need, the gospel and all the gospel teaches us. For we ask it all in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen. <laughs>